0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Erin Cameron and Adam Pawlik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. Along with, with me, as always, is Adam Pawagat. This is part of our real estate conference series. We're here live recording at the Land and Development Conference in Toronto. I'd like to thank our sponsors, First National, and of course, our partner Informa for this. Today, very exciting guest, it's uh, Brian McCauley, who's the president and CEO of Concert Properties. Welcome, Brian.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We've got uh, we've got Brian Fresh off uh, a panel here, and so we're going to rehash some of the topics he got in, he got into there. But for those that don't know you and don't know your company, can you kind of give the the five minute version of how you got into real estate. You know your exciting story and uh, and why uh, why cons are so great.
2: Sure. Well, let me start. Yeah, if you really want to know the history, the reality is um, I you know I've always been intrigued with the building industry was as a student. Uh, looked for career paths to head in this direction, and for, at that point decided it was a professional route, either an engineer or an architect. So long story short, I did go through architecture school, got a master's in architecture from the University of Oregon, I practiced architecture for a period of time in the city of Vancouver, and then uh, got the great opportunity of joining a company at that time was called VLC Properties, now called Concert Properties, uh, back in, uh, firstly, as a consultant for them in the early 90s, and and then joined them and staff and As a development manager in uh, in 1994.
1: So were you doing some architecture work for them at that time? Yeah, I was.
2: I did a master plan community called Collingwood Village in the east side of Vancouver and 27 acres of land, 2,500 homes, multiple high-rises, school site, a neighborhood house, seven and a half acres of land for a park. Was that at the time so, sort
1: of the biggest sort of project you had worked on?
2: Absolutely, yeah. No, the most comprehensive, and certainly drew upon everything that I'd done as a student and uh, interest in architecture for what sure. What
1: age were you? you? Just in your twenties and your thirties at this point? Like uh, by that time,
2: by that time, I was uh, probably uh, when I started working on the project, just turning thirty. Okay. So, so I had some
1: experience. Had it wasn't like of you straight out school and here you go, there's, learn on the
2: fly. No, I'd done lots of other projects architecturally, okay. particularly a lot of residential projects, which was where my area of expertise doing my master's was. So anyways, a little bit about a concert. Concert sure. is um, a very diversified real estate development company, private company, owned by 19 Canadian pension plans. We're act, our head office is in Vancouver. We're active in British Columbia, Alberta, and here in Ontario. We also have a sister company called Concert Infrastructure, which does P3 public-private partnerships, and uh, we're uh, that entity is active in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and here in Ontario. The business uh, infrastructure being the fifth, but the other ones we do we build purpose-built rental residential housing. We do for-sale condominiums. We build a senior's lifestyle communities and we have a por- growing portfolio of office and industrial properties across uh, BC, Alberta, and Ontario.
0: And that's four, so the fifth would be the infrastructure And, side. and the fifth
2: leg is the infrastructure for sure, yeah.
0: So I got, I got yeah. to ask, back when you were... Joining what was not then concept but now is as an architect. Did day one, did you have the vision of my end game here is to be president not, of this company? <laughs> not even close. <laughs> the answer is yes. You not, should be like, yeah, no, I knew it. I was not for it the close. beginning. No,
2: not even close. No, in fact, I was just really intrigued. As an architect, I came to a realization very quickly that you know, architecture is, a, is an incredibly important profession to be in, but there was a greater and greater liability being put on the architect and and less and less responsibility. And what I mean by that is the, the guys that are making the decisions on development projects today are the guys that are writing the checks. So the developers are actually making the decisions and they're uh, orchestrating all of the other consultants that are necessary to do development and so I saw an opportunity to think about development and the creation of communities holistically by coming to what I refer to as the dark side. Yeah, sure. And I came on as a development manager with responsibility for executing that project, at Collingwood Village that I talked about earlier, and then took on a variety of tasks. I was exiled here to Toronto in 2001 and formed uh, concerts operations here in Toronto then and then went back to Vancouver and became president in 2009.
1: Okay, so it's been 10 years now at the helm. It has, yeah. Do, uh, this is kind of a side, but do architects prefer working with you because of your background or do they go, like, oh
2: I think that's, a, that's <laughs> a dangerous question. I think some enjoy the fact that I know what it feels like from their side of the table. Some are annoyed by the fact that I know too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I bet.
0: yeah. At the, at the time, that Collingwood project must have been the largest in that town.
2: Well, you know, if you think back to the late 80s uh, in Vancouver at that time, we had a lot of former industrial lands that were being redeveloped into master plan communities. So not the least of which is everything that Concord has done on False Creek, on the north side of Falls Creek. You know, that was a large former railway lands on the shores of Falls Creek that were being redeveloped, all of Coal Harbour. It was faces the inner harbour of Vancouver that was being redeveloped, again, former rail lines. And the lands that we had acquired out in the east side of the city for Collingwood Village were former industrial lands, but right at a SkyTrain station. So it was really one of the first transit-oriented development sites, even before they had uh, the acronym of TOD. (laughs) And um, so it was an exciting project, large-scale, but it wasn't the only large-scale project being done in Vancouver at the time.
0: Speaking of large projects, hmm. in your current roster, you've got a couple. We do.
2: Yeah, um, we are really, uh, from Victoria to here in Toronto, we've got a variety of large projects underway. We, uh, starting in the West, we have a six acre site in partnership with the Joll family, a uh, local developer in Victoria, to redevelop six acres of land right behind the legislature, a project called Capital Park, which is a mixture of office, for sale, residential condo, as well as a rental building. And some uh, commercial retail on that. It's an exciting project. It's uh, we're under underway now with the last phase of development on that site. So that's a great one in Vancouver. We have a couple of or a few mixed-use, large-scale master plan communities. One of them in North Vancouver called uh, Harborside, which is 12 acres of waterfront land on the Inner Harbour facing downtown Vancouver, and that's a million square feet of development, which will be rental, seniors, and for-sale condominium with a significant amount of retail, at-grade retail, to animate the community. And then we have a large assembly out in Coquitlam that's working its way through the approval process. Well, it's actually, we're doing working drawings on the first phase of development out there, and it'll be 2,700 homes. Wow on about uh, 10 acres of land and uh, first phase of development will be a mixture of rental and for sale. Plus a new, uh, we're going to build a new 60,000 square foot YMCA as part of that.
1: Oh, neat. So the panel you were just on was about affordability. Correct. And uh, one of the interesting things you said on the panel was really kind of trying to define what affordability means to different people and and sort of the misnomer that it has sort of a negative connotation to a development. Somebody talk us through what your, what Concert's approach is to affordability or how you think about it.
2: Sure, yeah, affordability means something different to everybody in every location and I appreciate that's an overused phrase by all levels of government and not very well defined. You know, concerts always had, we have a social conscience. We've always been involved in trying to develop housing that is more affordable. Right back to our roots. In fact, one of the early projects we did in the early 1990s was we did we got six properties from the city of Vancouver under a long-term land lease and built 1,000 rental homes oh, on wow. it. So, I just
1: want to point out, I mean, you called them, they're more affordable. They're not affordable units, they're more, more affordable, affordable, which is really kind of a nuanced yeah. but really, really important distinction.
2: It is, and and like I say, affordability means something different to everybody. So where we are in the cycle today is uh, with all of the well-intentioned policy that's coming out from the federal government, provincial po- governments, uh, municipal governments. There's lots of well-intentioned incentives that are trying to be layered onto the marketplace today in order for us to create more affordable housing. And uh, we're doing our part uh, trying to line up federal government financing through the rental construction financing initiative or the co-investment funds or the provincial governments that are coming out with their own financing vehicles and then municipalities that are looking to either forego development cost charges or other things in order to create greater affordability. So on many of our projects, we're trying to implement a number of units as part of our sure. purpose-built rental buildings that would be more affordable.
1: Is there a particular strategy that you're finding works better in other jurisdictions, or is it is it kind of hmm. similar across the country? Or you know, what's the... What is the what's the approach that you seem to be finding is working best right now, or is it kind of just a smorgasbord because you've got so many different sort of regulations or you know new uh, new initiatives coming out at all layers of government? It's almost impossible to pick one that works best.
2: Yeah, I don't think there is a single approach. Uh, to be honest with you, I think if I was to give you one attribute, and that's patience. This is not an easy game to work your way through the various priorities and policy initiatives that are created by multiple levels of government, but. Yeah, you know, I, th- I always say to our team and others that we do, if there's a will, there's a way. If we're truly committed here as a nation and on a provincial level to to try and deliver more units on a more affordable basis, then we've got to find a way to figure it out. And again, each of the policies that we work under or within have all been created largely by academics behind closed doors, without the real world experiences of what has to. Happen and and the consequences of some of the un, you know the, the, the trickle,
1: trickle down effects that exactly. they, they, they miss out on yeah exactly
2: so you know we're we're doing our best to work our way through that
1: we're at the land and development conference so we should talk about land and you know with that affordable you know mm. kind of notion in mind how are you how does concert approach. Land acquisition and and just what you're looking for in land and how
0: hard is it? And, you know what's kind of because you're talking about very sizable chunks yeah. of land and markets that are tough to buy in, right? So that's uh, that's so, be a, a trick you might not want to share with everybody. But, no, no, <laughs> I
2: I'm happy to share what you know. Again, there's so many different facets of our business given the diversity we have, but I would say that strategically we made a big decision coming out of the. 0809 recession here in Toronto as well as in British Columbia to acquire land. So in 2011, 2012, 2013 we acquired larger pieces of land that were available.
1: So you're brilliant, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh,
2: but one of the reasons we did that was to try and create a predictable pipeline of development activity for us. So, you know, we we think that pipeline will deliver us 10 to 12 years of development. In fact, now it's going to deliver us more given how slow it is to get through approval process in every municipality. But the reality is, so in terms of our strategy on land acquisition today, elsewhere, we're very particular about what we're looking for. And we've done some deals recently here. We did a great deal uh, almost, well, 18 months, two years ago now with Rio Can to partner with them the corner of Bayview and Eglinton to build a purpose-built, two purpose-built rental housing units. And that was a very, uh, that was a very targeted approach by us. We like the location. We like the partnership that fits in our wheelhouse. Last year here in Toronto, we also bought the corner of Sherbourne and Howard. And one of the reasons why we aggress, and that's for a 50-story condominium tower, downtown Toronto, one block off Bloor, transit-oriented. And one of the reasons we were aggressively pursuing that was because it was zoned, ready to go. So we're not looking for a lot of land today and what we are looking for is very targeted.
1: And you still have a, like a healthy pipeline for the next sort of five, 10, 15 years? For sure we do,
2: yeah. Uh, across the board from, you know, certainly throughout for the all, f- v- For
1: all five different yeah. ha- components of your business.
2: Yeah, and one of the other strategies that why we went after larger scale land a few years back was so that we could create land to build rental residential housing and seniors housing as well as for sale condominium. We, um, you know, It's very difficult to buy land today to build purpose-built rental housing. When you're competing with a condominium developer, the land prices are exorbitant. So one of the ways we could do it, we have some historic land prices, we've got the ability to land a rental building as part of our master plan communities. So it was a very conscious strategy to try and find land back then that would feed most of our lines of business. Going
0: forward, yeah. yeah. Do you ever look for land in locations that are not you know, A locations in A markets?
2: You know, we're, we tend to be an urban builder, downtown core transit oriented. We really, you know, I, I call it the dumbbell approach. We we have a concentration of activity in Metro Vancouver and our concentration of activity in the GTA. So we don't really stray too far from the, those locations. There's lots to be done in both locations. So we kind of stick to that. Keeping you busy,
1: it sounds well, like. Well, at, at the
2: end of the day, you know, it, uh, development is a local game. Development is absolutely about understanding who the politicians are. It's about understanding the, the planning regime. And you can't be an expert in every location across this country. Boots, boots I, on the ground. Boots on the ground. So we absolutely believe that you, you need to be a local developer. We don't believe you can parachute in and develop in too many locations. At
0: least do it successfully. Anyway. Correct, Yeah. So one of your developments is called the Kipp District, and it's actually where Aaron and I live, right, uh, right nearby. So for those not familiar with Toronto, it's in Etobicoke, it's a, a near suburb, I guess you would call it, of, uh, of downtown. Would that be as far away from center ice as you'd go? Is transit oriented?
2: Yeah, I mean, a that, suburb. Probably for Toronto, that's on the perimeter of where we are today. We've built in uh, North York, we've built uh, in Etobicoke, but generally the rest of our uh, buildings have been downtown core. Um, Etobicoke is a great location. You guys know it well Uh, It's transit oriented, uh, lots of upgrades and improvements that are being made to the uh, subway lines and a transit hub that's coming into Etobicoke. We've built in Etobicoke before we built project called Village Gate West just to the east of Kipling. Uh, Sorry, just, yeah, just to the east of Kipling. And then we acquired the Canadian tire store that was on Dundas West of the Kipling subway station. And we've uh, got five towers proposed for that site. First tower is finished last year, 285-unit condominium building. And we're going to break ground in July with a twin tower project, one of which will be 285-unit condo project and the other is a 233-unit rental project. And back to your affordable comment, that's one of the things that uh, we've worked with the City of Toronto through their Open Doors program and we'll deliver... And, and CMHC actually through their rental construction financing program, we're hoping to deliver 70 of the 233 units mm-hmm. in there on a below market affordable basis.
0: It's an unusually high percentage for most projects.
2: Yeah, 30 okay. percent is not doesn't scare us. First of all, I mean, again, those people, you know, what is affordable housing comes back to our earlier comment. This is not social housing. These are people that are uh, school teachers and firefighters, and and this is the workforce housing. That is needed in this city, so it's not necessarily the deepest yeah, level the, of subsidy. The CMHC
1: RCF program, rental construction finance program, really is you know, its it's more affordable units, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're typically about 20% below sort of CMHC market right. rent, so we're not talking you know subsidized housing, we're just talking That's right. r- units that are slightly more affordable than the market. That's great. Right. yeah do you want to
2: talk about
1: the infrastructure arm that's an interesting component is that something keeping you busy or you know maybe maybe scale the the five different avenues that you're working in
2: yeah we, uh, i mean we, it really is a separate business for us and and it it is does depend on the offerings that come out from various levels of government on, the, so on those public...
1: Fairly regulated with those RFPs and your yeah, bidding process. Yeah,
2: and it's a, it a, it's a, a cumbersome program to, or process to go through in order to win the rights. But over the years, we've got quite a portfolio of projects that we have under that wing of the company. One of them, we have 18 Ontario provincial police facilities here, for instance, which wow. we manage for the life of the concession, which in the P3 world is 30 years. We have the Forensic Science and Coroner Service building up at Wilson and Keele here in Toronto. We have 21 schools in Alberta. We have 18 schools in Saskatchewan that we've built manage for 30 years.
1: Is that a, So that's clearly a legacy arm or legacy business you've been doing for the long time, so you continue to do it. My point is, this is not a new endeavor that you kind of initiated five years ago. Like we got, you I started it long... 10 years ago. Okay, you did? Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> so this is your baby, so to speak? No,
2: no, it's not my baby. And in fact, I, I'm not going to take any credit for this one because our previous CEO, Dave Bodmore, and, you know, certainly got us into it. It was something that our shareholders were keenly interested in participating in. They consider it almost another asset class, separate into distinct from real estate. How does the uh,
0: profitability compare to the other asset classes you're involved in? It depends
2: on when you get in. Ah. Um, It really does. If you win the right going through the RFQ process, the RFP process, and ultimately are the, the winner of that bid process... You can do very well as long as you maintain your costs and you deliver on time. Does your
1: reputation have anything to do with the RFP process? Like I'm curious, or is it always just lowest common denominator wins regardless? Because I mean, you guys have a great reputation in the marketplace. So do they can kind of say we'd rather work with this developer because we know that they're going to build on budget, on time, and be be easy to work with.
2: Oh, I'd love to say it does matter, but I think on the <laughs> on the public-private partnership side is absolutely a scorecard. Yeah, and um, you know, reputation is certainly a big, uh, significant issue there. But I would say, and that's probably more to get qualified as the one of the three that goes through the RFP process. But at the end of the day, it's very much dollars and cents driven. I will tell you on the real estate, the core businesses we have, reputation makes a huge of difference. Of course. And you know, we get opportunities to acquire lands today off market because of who we are. And the fact that the brokerage community and others know that we're we're a closer. Mm-hmm. If we're in the game, we've done our homework. And we come to the table with a legitimate bid that we are often, and we may not be the highest bid, but we're often the best bid. That's and a, that makes a difference.
1: That's a good segue. I, I love asking this question of of sort of the leaders that we get to interview about the, the culture of concert mm. and, and how you maintain that. What do you believe the culture is? And maybe talk to that a little bit. Sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have been here. I wouldn't be with the company for 25 years if I didn't believe in it. There are some core values that we established at the outset of the company. They're absolutely the reason why we're all here today. You know, I think we have an obligation, obviously, to make money and to deliver returns to the 19 pension plans that own us, and that's that goes without saying. But we also have a huge commitment to give back to the communities that we do work in. So there isn't any one of our projects or a day that goes by that we're not thinking about how we can make better communities. And I think where I am in the cycle today is to really look at the things that are going on around us, particularly around urban intensification, high-density living. You know, you saw some stats this morning where, you know, where where the world is going in terms of urban intensification, but the ramifications of all that urban intensification is also around what's happening socially. And I think we as, as community builders have an obligation and responsibility to look at the homes that we create, the neighborhoods that we're building, and make sure that we are addressing some of those issues of consequences of high-density living. So, you know, we talk a lot, or you, you hear more and more stories about social alienation and isolation and loneliness that's happening at higher and higher densities. And I think we, as a, as a complete community builder, have a way of addressing that, not only in the homes that we build, the types of homes that we build, but also the amenities that we provide. And the integrated communities. And one of the things we really believe in is multi-generational communities. You know, one of the reasons we're in the seniors business is we think that's a. First of all, we know there's a huge growing demand and we, we're obviously aware of the demographic shift. But the reality is uh, we want to create true communities for uh, active adult oriented lifestyle. And that is a wonderful complement to family housing that's in another part of our community. And if we can sprinkle in a daycare or other community amenity that really creates a sense of community, that's what we're about. So we're striving today as part of our, our mandate here to figure out what we can do to be a better community builder.
1: So, Brian, on that line, you know, with this sort of urbanization, and we, we actually just had, we had Wendy Waters recording yesterday, and that'll be released in a couple of weeks for our listeners, but, you know, one of the things we talked about is we've got had, you know, in Toronto particularly, and Vancouver is pretty similar, with 150,000 sort of I don't want to use the term millennials, but people between the ages of sort of 20 and 39 kind of come into the cities of Vancouver and Toronto. We're seeing a big shift in the demographics you mentioned. And, you know, of course, that kind of, in my mind, leads to the workforce. And we've got an older dem- demographic exiting the workforce and a younger demographic that are, have different demands and needs for their employment situations. And so, you know, at concert, what do you, how do you approach the change in what your employees are looking for? And, and how do you attract new talent?
2: No, it's a really good question. I mean, building on what Benjamin Tal said this morning in the economic overview, and the reality is I think fewer and fewer of the uh, older generation are retiring right now. Yeah, fair. But, and that has, that has created some challenges. But at concert, certainly one of the things we paid a lot of attention to over the last couple of years is succession planning. Within the organization, I myself have gone through a succession to get to where I am today. And I'm, I'm certainly very conscious of what my next tier of senior managers are doing. But one of the things we've instilled throughout the company is uh, absolutely personal development. So, you know, we do performance reviews, obviously, but at the end of the day, it's really about what can we do as an organization to both to enhance your professional development as well as your personal development at concert. So we spend a lot of time talking about that. We've done, uh, you know, we do employee engagement surveys. We learn from what people really want and how we can balance and help them And in their lifestyle, certainly work-life balance becomes a major issue in every organization, doesn't matter what industry you're in today. So it's always, and and I'd love to say there's a magic bullet there, but there isn't. We struggle to find ways to improve or offer our staff everything we can to create that work-life balance. So we've done lots of things in terms of the, the fitness allowance there's and a, the transit yeah, allowance. There's an interesting and all the way to
1: stuff. kind of think about it in my mind because you know before, I, and I've had this conversation where, you know what's the reward for coming to work? right? Mm. I think older generations say, well, your reward is, getting paid so mm. go go do your work but now the younger generations like no no like yes I get paid but what is the reward for, mm-hmm. for coming and showing up every day and doing that work and you're quite frankly you're battling sometimes often you know technology companies where the reward is you get to bring your dog and you've got sort of flex hours you can play video games or pool and ping pong and that's the reward and you know I don't think I don't I can't imagine you correct me if I'm wrong I don't think concerts thinking about putting pool tables in their in their offices but how, what is it that you're kind of tackling that sort of combative about attracting talent against sort of the, the workforce space that we're in today?
2: Yeah, so probably the biggest change we've done is a physical change to our work environment. You know, I've been with a company, as I mentioned earlier, for 25 years. I, uh, we own an office building in downtown Vancouver that we occupy. It's been our head office forever. And this past year, we took it upon ourselves to say, look, we need to create a completely different work environment. And everybody's doing it. Everybody's creating a modern workplace environment, but we effectively blown up uh, floors within our office building today, and we're completely redesigning it. And that was partly a reason to create a better modern environment for people to come to work in and be happy to come to work in. We do have a pet policy; we do allow dogs oh, and, I, and all that other stuff. But I'll give you my we, I'll give you my resume no, after this. And yeah. no, we don't have a pool table, <laughs> but we've got lots of other outdoor amenity spaces that build off our common areas. But so creating a, a more Modern collaborative workspace was one of the key initiatives that I wanted to see. We, uh, in our most recent employee engagement survey, collaboration was a big issue. And partly I realized the physical constraints of our office was inhibiting collaboration. So to create a more modern workspace and create a greater environment for people to communicate on a more frequent basis with casual collisions. Incidental and interaction. Totally. Yeah. And it's working. You know, we've just, we're just occupying the first, we've just occupied in the last month, the first floor of our transformational change in Toronto or in Vancouver. And we've done a similar uh, office environment here in Toronto now, and I've found huge benefits to that. So in terms of creating a a nicer place to work and a more desirable place to hang out. That's what we're Sounds doing. Sounds like
1: you're a bit ahead of the curve, I suspect. Or maybe, maybe uh, you're a developer. I'm a, a financial institution. Maybe we're just
0: behind the curve. I don't know. <laughs> State is <and> stuffy. That's <laughs> exactly. what Toronto is. As, as president, how's uh, your work life balance?
2: Oh, I'm ma- uh, miserable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if, you ask, if you ask my wife, it's miserable. Um, you're in the uh, old
0: format of work. Is that the uh, no, I,
2: I thoroughly enjoy what I do on a daily basis. And uh, to be honest with you, I enjoy the people I work with every day. So I don't consider it every day to be work. Yes, there is, you know, when you're in the president CEO role, there are some things that you have to do that you maybe don't enjoy as much. They podcast. But (laughs) But at the end of the day, you know what, you try and find balance where you can.
0: Before we let you go, I think we're about to be overrun with uh, conference attendees here heading to lunch. Uh, Quick question about the Vancouver condo market. I mean, anecdotally, and even the newspapers are picking up on it that a lot of projects have been sidelined. And you've got obviously a big presence in the Vancouver condo market. Are you experiencing that or seeing that?
2: Yeah, I think there's. First of all, I think what you're reading in the national newspapers or what you're hearing on the on the evening news is not what's really going on in that marketplace. There is absolutely a correction that's happened at the high end of the market uh, all of the layered policy that provincial government has brought in or federal whether it's the stress testing of first time home buyers or the increase of foreign buyers taxes speculation tax the school tax and everything else that the province of British Columbia has layered on there's definitely they're doing everything they can to tamp down this market and take the urgency out of the market and it's working to be honest with you so i think what we're seeing is uh, you know you know if you, if you dial the clock back a couple of years the reality is housing, condominium housing, maybe particularly in Vancouver, but probably here in Toronto as well, has become far more commoditized. It was, It's much more of an investment vehicle as opposed to real homes for real people. And I think what you're seeing is that there's a correction that's going on that's going to get us back to real homes for real people and there will be, it will be demand-driven. There won't be this frenzy, speculative frenzy that goes on. The froth has come off the top here, and that's fine, to be honest with you. It is healthy. So yes, there are guys that are maybe taking a cautious approach right now and, and putting their projects on the sidelines for a while just to gauge what's going on in the marketplace. But you know, I've been in the business long enough to know that in the late 90s, it was exactly like this. You know, You had to work hard on the sales side. You had to have salespeople that knew how to sell and not just take orders. And the reality is you are going to go at a different pace. You're not going to blow a project out overnight. You're not going to do 100% pre-sales. You're not even going to do 90% pre-sales. We did a project, we're doing a project today in Victoria where we we launched construction with 30% pre-sales because we know that in that market, those are end users. Those people are real buyers, but they will only come if you build. And for us, so, you know, I think, we're going to see a correction where people's expectations will be for lower amounts of pre-sales, probably a little bit more equity into their deals, but there still is a strong market there. So it's not catastrophic.
0: We appreciate, uh, appreciate the insight, Brian. And I think, uh, I speak for both Aaron and I, we thank you for coming on the podcast today. This was uh, a you know, real eye-opener from a, a great perspective in uh, you know the two biggest markets in the country.
2: My pleasure. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks,
0: Brian. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for listening. We want to thank the Landed Development Conference for having us here today. And we want to thank uh, First National. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.